2: on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
2: And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
3: And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour.
1: Hi Bill, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
4: Yes, hello, I'm uh, interested in uh, asking about when I can retire, if I can retire early. Good, tell me a little bit about yourself,
1: we'll see if I can tell you the answer. How old are you? 45. 45 years old, married or single? Married. Married. Any children? One child. Living at home? Yes. Okay. One child at home. What's your income, Bill? Uh, It's high. It's 1.5. One and a half million? Yes, sir. Per year? Yes. And how long is that due to last? Uh, As long as I continue to work. All right. How long? All right. right, We've got your income. Obviously, your expenses aren't a million and a half, so technically, uh, you're... You're not having a problem covering your living expenses, I presume. No, not at all. Okay, let's go to your assets. What does your investment portfolio look like?
4: Um, I have a fairly extensive. I have a uh, IRA that's actually fairly fairly small, with about three hundred and fifty. That's a SEP IRA. You
1: hang on one second. You got a SEP at three hundred and fifty thousand.
4: Got you. I have a uh, mutual fund portfolio. Okay of 1.5 in in, in index funds.
1: All right, so you've got a million and a half in mutual funds, in in index funds.
4: What else do you have? Uh, About uh, 100 in stock funds. 100,000 in in stocks or stock uh, funds? Individual
1: stocks. In stocks, okay.
4: Uh, Yes, 100 in stocks. My wife has her own portfolio of about 125 in mutual funds. All right. I have 170 in the 529 plan for my son. What's that in? Most of it's in a uh, in index funds as well, in a total stock market and a uh, 500 index fund. All
1: right. Is that a North Carolina 529, or is it at another state?
4: Uh, out of state, one Virginia, one Iowa. All right. I have two commercial properties mm-hmm. that uh, are worth uh, 1.5, of which I owe 1.2, and those cover their costs per year. Okay. With rental,
1: yeah, one point two million of uh, mortgage debt on that. Correct. Okay.
4: And then uh, several other properties uh, combined worth of uh, six hundred, of which I owe four hundred, plus my personal residence, which is worth about seven fifty, and I owe about three fifty.
1: All right. So you're carrying about two million dollars of debt. First of all, I notice. And your question is, when can you retire? The question was going to ultimately turn upon financial independence, which is based upon your living expense needs. Do you have an idea what it costs to support you at your desired lifestyle?
4: Sure. Only the my living expenses themselves are not that high, probably in the two hundred range. It's just the, the carrying cost of the investment Right, Right. Right.
1: Yeah. No. I want. I want to. You're right. I want to separate those. So you think about two hundred thousand would support your desired lifestyle? Yes. So if you
3: have a question about retirement planning, income during retirement sources of income. Call during the week. Our number is 919-872-7000. Make an appointment to sit down, review what you've accumulated so far, and uh, this will give you the best sense of knowing that you're on track and ready for retirement.
1: All right. The first thing is you're going to need about 4300000 of total investment portfolio to be able to support the kind of lifestyle that you're living, and also pay the taxes on it. Got it. However, that also assumes that you have uh, that you've gotten rid of the commercial property. The commercial property sounds to me—I mean, personally—I would say that's a real losing deal. To carry 1.2 million dollars of debt and have only a few hundred thousand of equity, and to know that you know you could be leaving your wife a big mess. I mean, I don't know many wives would be happy to inherit two million dollars of debt. Uh, I I've dealt with a number of widows with mortgages in the last twenty five years, and so
4: that well, seems. It's a great it's a grade a commercial property that that has a fifteen year lease, and uh, the purpose was to uh, you know turn it over to a ten thirty one exchange in uh, due course. Yeah, Well. If you're asking me my
1: opinion, that's a bad strategy and it's, it's something you should get rid of because it's not going to help you achieve your goals of being able to, uh, at least if you're interested in retiring now and becoming financially independent now, you want to move in the opposite direction. 1031 is simply delaying the pain. It doesn't yep. do anything for you and there are a number of complications that are there. Uh, the capital gain tax and so forth, you'd have to deal with it, but... Bottom line is how to achieve four point three million. Your mutual funds are a million and a half, and your Sep IRA three hundred and fifty that puts you up at a million eight five. You add the um, the hundred and twenty five of other mutual funds and the hundred thousand two twenty five, so you're at about two and a half million. So, so what you want to do is you want to go ahead and aggressively start what we call a pay yourself first plan to see how rapidly you could get yourself to that point in other words if indeed your expenses are only 200,000 and if indeed the commercial property is paying its own debt carrying cost then you should be able to put aside a very strong amount on a monthly basis yeah if you do that Working with a spreadsheet and working with a software program that uh, you know that a, a decent financial planning firm should have, we, we we've got a pretty high highly sophisticated one in our firm. But working that way, you ought to be able to come up with well, how long would it take me to accumulate four point three million? Now, starting with about two and a half million you have to have some assumption of what you're going to of what your money's going to grow at. Mm-hmm. I would get rid of all your index funds because that, that you're doing nothing but waiting for the next disaster. Index funds are simply riding the market. And that's not why you should be in mutual funds. You should always be in mutual funds because of managers, because of men and women who give you some logic of what why you want to give them money. To just sock your money away into a uh, you know into a, a fund that's going to ride the market. I've had more people come to me who show me that, you know, they lost half of their retirement account by riding through with index funds. So we don't want to we don't want to be that way. We want to be we want to have a, a philosophy of asset management that is proactive, not reactive.
2: Our number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA seven thousand.
1: But right now, I think that you're what's what's basically missing in everything you've got is that you don't have any asset allocation. Have an allocation. Yeah, there is no right asset. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's all hit and miss.
2: And I mean, uh, you've done a great job of accumulating. But if the, if your goal is to retire,
1: how are we going to get there sooner than later? Right. Well, you want to protect yourself on the downside, on the loss side, not to go ahead and just uh, think of the upside or think of the accumulation side. Right. And so there needs to be an overall asset allocation model superimposed upon what you have and what you will be putting in. Now, the other part of the equation is your SEP at your age is going to also require a strategy to help support you. Yep. That can be done. The IRS does allow you an exception even though you'd be under 59 and a half, there is a way that we have clients get by that using Section seventy two t, but again, everything is based upon how it's all allocated according to some model that you're comfortable with or that we're comfortable with is going to go ahead and do what you what we what we think it's going to do, and then move along in that in that direction. The other thing I don't like is I don't know why you've got a hundred thousand dollars in individual stocks. I wouldn't have you in any individual stocks.
4: I'm not a I'm not a professional stock picker, so uh, so that how did you pick them? Uh, these are companies that I've become familiar with that uh, I wanted to wanted to invest in.
1: Uh huh. Well, generally, we tell people
4: don't don't that's do that. There's, that's why there's so little there because I really do not feel comfortable doing. That.
1: Yeah, uh, almost always we advise people never invest. Uh, individual stocks, and never invest in companies that you think you know a lot about. All the Krispy Kreme employees really learned that lesson not long ago. I've had more IBMers in the last 20 years who have groaned as they've learned that lesson than you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because no one ever knows, and if they do know, the market's already priced it. There's nothing that you would know that others aren't that you know that that the professional mutual fund managers aren't knowing.
2: Sometimes it's cool to own stocks, but it's a risky yeah. posture as you go yeah. forward. But
4: where right? else would you diversify here? i, I mean you, you just think the index funds are too low risk I mean too less
1: of no, 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 too high risk, not too low risk. So, so I Doug, wouldn't do. Th- are you t-
2: saying to to go into a stock mutual funds versus stock individual stocks?
1: No, no. There are three different things we're talking about at the same time. You can right. buy an individual stock, or you can buy into a mutual fund, which is a basket of maybe a hundred stocks. Right. Or you can buy into a basket of mutual a basket of stocks a mutual fund that has a manager. Right. Right. And there's a major difference. And one, both of the mutual funds will give you diversification, which is safer than the individual stock. Because the only reason you ever buy a stock is because you're waiting to sell it. You never buy a stock because it's, it has no value on its own. It's, it's a worthless piece of paper. It has, no, it has no value according to the IRS. If you lose it, you tear it up or anything, as opposed to a bond or something, which is a debt security. So on the other hand, if you have a mutual fund... You don't really own, well, I mean, te- legally you own a fund, but what you really are doing is you're putting money in the hands of a, of a manager, of a trader, who's making the decisions for you of when to buy or when to sell. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do think diversification is the crucial issue. The question then comes to how many different mutual funds, and there are other investment types that I like, by the way. I think you should have REITs in your portfolio. There should be real estate investments in a portfolio. I
4: have a. Millions of dollars in real estate portfolio. In REITs? Well, not in REITs, but in real estate. That's a a segment of my portfolio.
1: Well, again, that's that's exactly the same problem. There it is again. Anytime you own anything individually, you're the guru. And that means you think you're smarter than the other guy, and at least in my case, I'm convinced I'm not smarter than the other guy. I'm convinced that if I try to be the winner, Whether it's in Las Vegas, whether it's buying a piece of real estate, or whether it's buying a stock, there's somebody out there who's smarter than I, and I'm waiting for an accident to happen. And I've seen it happen to so many hundreds and hundreds of clients through the years that I'm pretty convinced that's what happens. But the REITs are very different. If you go into a mutual fund where there are managers that are trading commercial REITs Buying and selling and holding them for then you're not you're not the owner of the of the of the building you're not carrying the debt you don't have any any, any debt liability do you see the difference yes of course yes so I don't I don't know if that helps you or not but that's at least the the way that I would answer the question when can I retire as soon as you have accumulated 4.3 million and as soon as we're comfortable that it's positioned properly then that's you know that's the way you do it
2: and uh, bill if you if you'd like further information or any other questions give us a call at the office that's well, in Raleigh you. and that number's 8727000 that's USA7000 all right you have a good night thank you bill we enjoyed your call take care
1: interesting call you know uh, obviously he's had a change in his situation and you can tell because he's only accumulated about 1.8 million and as he said, it wasn't that way four or five years ago, three, four years ago. But right. with an income of a million incredible. five, then it looks very good. If he can hold that income and get it, the excess built into a portfolio properly, then he will be able to achieve his goals.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF. What's new in the area of investment planning? Well, Doug. People um, choosing a financial planner may have made the best decision by working with a financial planner,
1: right? Yeah, I think so, Lynn. The, the best investment decision some people ever make is to work with a financial planner. Because a financial planner, if you think about it, there are really about seven things that the financial planner can do. First of all, a financial planner may help you increase your investment results.
2: And a financial planner takes the time
1: to understand you and to understand your goals. And of course, third, a financial planner can recommend funds that fit your needs, because lots of mutual funds don't.
2: Four, a financial planner may help you decide
1: how to allocate your assets. And a financial planner can analyze how changing conditions affect you. Six, a financial planner can work to deliver information while it's still timely. And seven, a financial planner helps make investing much more convenient. So of all the investment decisions a person ever makes, it seems to me the most important one just might be the decision to put a certified financial planner on your side. Now you talk about how and a planner may help you increase your investment results, Linda. You know, the famous Dahlbar study, which we've talked about on the air in the past, was a a 10-and-a-half-year study of investments made in over 5,000 mutual funds, and it was conducted by the Dahlbar services, and they illustrated why it was so important, because investors who used a financial planner outperformed those who didn't by over 17% in their stock funds, and they outperformed by over 21% in their bond funds.
2: And, you know, people may ask why. Well, do-it-yourself investors were more likely to sell on the basis of short-term bad news, and they held their funds an average 2.6 years. But professionally advised investors were more patient. They held their funds an average 3.5
1: years, so they gained greater opportunities for long-term growth. Right? Right. Holding the hands of the investors through tough times made the crucial difference. Now, we also said that a financial planner will take the time to understand you and your goals.
2: A financial planner makes it their business to learn who you are and where you are with your investment program and where you want to go. And they help you understand the process. Right. And the vehicles. Right. So from getting to know you, if you know, from this getting to know you process, then your financial planner can offer customized investment strategies for retirement planning, for enhancing your after tax return opportunities, for planning your parents' financial needs in latter years and for funding your children's educations.
1: Right. That's exactly right, Lynn.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000.
1: Well, then you know, you probably have spoken to, how many people have you spoken to who have called our offices uh, in the last five years? I
2: would say between, I don't know, maybe... Close to four thousand
1: people, maybe four thousand people that you've spoken to, and uh, every one of them that comes in our office, you have them write down before they meet with me the list of questions that they want to have addressed. Right,
2: right, because most people, you know, that have accumulated generally have things that they've thought about that they wish they could
1: ask somebody. What would you say is the are the, the, the most common questions that you see people write down on their list of questions?
2: How much should I have in my emergency fund or how much should I be saving? Or are my investments in the right vehicles? Um, should I sell my house? Uh, should I prepay my mortgage? Just, I mean, they're innumerable.
1: Uh-huh. So you think the most common ones are how much in an emergency fund and... Um, what does my portfolio look what's like? What's my or overall my investment inv- portfolio look like? Right. How about retirement? Retirement.
2: Uh, yes. How can I plan for retirement? Am I doing the proper? Am I in the right direction, or am I, I am I doing the right things in planning for retirement?
1: Do you have many people that write down questions? Will I be able to make it?
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you?
1: That's
2: yeah, they wonder based on what income they have currently, are they going to be able to retire when they want to?
1: Mm-hmm. Are they putting enough aside from their income? Right. Well, that's interesting because understanding you and your goals is the job of the planner. Now, we also said that the planner can recommend different funds, and mutual funds offer lots of professional management and diversification and liquidity and all those good things, but how do you choose among the funds that are out there?
2: Well, your financial planner can help you see how well a fund's objectives, uh, their track record, and their management style match your specific needs and your goals. So, Usually, when you work with a financial planner, you should be able to receive information on how much volatility the funds managers will assume to achieve your objectives. Right, Doug?
1: Yeah. You also ought to be able to get, if your planner is worth their salt, the fund's performance compared to other funds with similar objectives. And how the fund is done, not only in up markets, but also in down markets. And you should see how the fund's performance is versus its respective investment indices over different time periods. And of course you also want to know what types of stocks or bonds the fund invests in and how those securities can affect, you know, the performance of the fund.
2: And a financial planner can help you decide how to allocate your assets owning just one fund isn't always the best strategy. And, you know, we've always said, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So it's important to diversify your investments among a number of different funds that can reduce your overall risk. Right, Doug?
1: Mm -hmm. Things like how many funds you need to own are questions that you have a right to know. Are two funds right? Five funds right? What percentage of your investment dollars should you put in income funds and how much in stock funds and how much in money market and how much in domestic versus international funds? Well, all of these things are important to get a handle on. And your financial planner, after he learns your objectives and your time horizon and your risk tolerances, can find recommendations that are tailored to your individual needs. And there are a lot of issues in, de- in deciding on mutual funds other than just Let's buy a fund. Your planner should inform you when there's a change in the fund's management style, and and he should also help reallocate your portfolio to meet changing needs.
2: We also stated that your financial planner can help you analyze how changing conditions affect you. Now, financial publications like to show lists of hot funds to buy now, but, you know, those recommendations do change frequently. So whose list should you believe? Well. With a professional on your side, using an advisor, you can gain an understanding of how changing economic and market conditions affect your particular situation. So when you do make a change in your investment portfolio, there's a logical reason behind it. Right. Which would you prefer? The personalized services of a financial planner who you know and trust?
1: Or... Generalized information from a journalist. Which is what the public generally is listening to. Right. Generalized information, buy this fund, sell this fund from a public And agent. people
2: do get confused. And, I, you know, I, as we were talking about all the listeners that have called over the years, people really do get confused. I had a lady call last week. She and her husband were trying to figure out where to put some retirement money. And this so-called financial planner came out and sold him some whole life insurance. Wow. In three years, she's never participated in her company's four hundred one k retirement plan, and instead bought some, bought life some whole, whole life insurance. So anyway, um, people do definitely need to work with a financial planner.
1: If I can help any more, call the office. Our office number is eight seven two seven thousand.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio six eighty WPTF. I was wondering if maybe we could go over a mutual fund selection checklist that might help our listeners.
1: That's a great idea, Linda. Mutual funds really can be excellent investments for beginning investors and sophisticated investors alike. However, the decision process can take a lot more time than you have to spare, really. So, here's a quality control checklist that can help folks streamline the selection process and make the final mutual fund selection. First, do the objectives of the mutual fund you're considering meet your personal investment objective?
2: Have you emotionally committed to leaving your money in this investment long-term through the ups and downs in the market cycle,
1: right? That's right. Is the fund that you're considering part of a family of funds?
2: Have you reviewed the fund's 12-month, 5-year, and 10-year track record?
1: Is the current portfolio manager the same manager who produced the track record that you reviewed?
2: Have you reviewed the costs associated with the fund, management costs, marketing costs, acquisition costs, and liquidation costs?
1: Do you have the privilege of telephone exchanges between mutual funds in the family? Like, is there a cost for exchanges, or is a specified time frame required to elapse between exchanges? Have you investigated the fund's reputation for investor services? Have you researched whether the fund has grown considerably in size over the last five years, and you really need to consider whether this will affect performance?
2: And is the investment philosophy of the fund the same today as it was five years ago and ten years ago?
1: And last, have you investigated the tax aspects of this fund?
2: That's about 11 questions that people should consider uh, in in looking at the mutual funds that they're selecting, correct?
1: You know, Lynn, so often people go into an excellent fund for the very wrong reasons, or they go into the wrong uh, uh, fund or a bad fund uh, with just too little education, not knowing what is a proper checklist to go through the selection of the fund. And really working with the help of an advisor, I think, is crucial, especially an advisor that has a checklist to walk down and... And if you can't go through the individual checklist yourself, then you should make sure that your advisor is able to answer all of the questions on these 10 points in the checklist. Seek competent financial advice. And if you have any financial questions, call me at 872 That's 872
2: Doug, earlier you you had one of the questions on the checklist uh, had to do with considering uh, a fund that's part of a family of funds. Could you maybe explain that? How, How does that work?
1: Yeah, I guess, Lynn, those of us in the financial and investment world, we have our own jargon, which we assume everybody else in the world knows. A family of mutual funds is a common term. You know, a mutual fund itself, Linda, is a pool of investments. It's not one investment. It's a giant pool, maybe of 100 stocks or 100 bonds or a mixture of stocks and bonds. And this pool is managed by a man or a woman That's a mutual fund manager who is sort of like a stockbroker. He's buying and selling, buying and selling out of the fund, and you put your money into the pool, and you've got a little piece of all of them, so you've diversified your investments and safeguarded yourself by having a small amount of money blended in with a whole bunch of other people in a larger pool. Now, that's a mutual fund, of course, which we all know. A family of mutual funds is a company that sponsors more than one mutual fund. It's one company that might have a mutual fund of stocks for those investors that want to be playing the stock market, but want to be A little more conservative than doing it themselves, so they would go into a stock mutual fund. And then there might be another mutual fund that is just for conservative investors that want to be in Ginny Mays, and that mutual fund has a whole bunch of Ginny Mays, which are Government National Mortgage Association bond pools. And then another mutual fund might be a mutual fund which is just a portfolio of international stocks for those people that want to have money in the international arena, and they want a manager who is buying and selling international national stocks for them and then there might be another mutual fund which has just government bonds in it and again they want a manager who will decide when to sell a low-yielding government bond and buy a higher-yielding government bond etc. and have their money in a pool with a bunch of other people but all of their money being invested in government bonds well each of these mutual funds can be under one giant family head or family heading so that actually There are different mutual funds for different types of people's objectives. And one way of selecting mutual funds is just trying to pick the best mutual fund track record that meets what attracts you. The danger in that very often is, especially if it's a fund that has a load, that's another term for commission going in, that if you don't like the performance of that fund after a few years and you want to move the money from that fund over to another mutual fund, if it's not part of a family... That is of a fund group, then you will have to pay a second commission going into the next one. Whereas typically the mutual fund families allow you to move from one of their mutual funds, let's say their European stock fund. You can do exchanges with yes, the we fund. call that exchanges from one mutual fund to the other, to the other, to the other, and those are almost always commission free with no charges. And those are very attractive benefits that the families of mutual funds offer. I do confess that I prefer the family of fund approach. So
2: people should look into this or check into this and when they deal with their financial planner.
1: I think looking at the consistency of the family, actually, Linda, is far more important than looking at the consistency of a fund manager. Very often, we are looking at a track record of a manager who is no longer there. He's been moved to another mutual fund in that family.
2: What are some of the major types, the five major types of mutual funds that most people look at?
1: Well, Linda, it's really hard to go ahead and encompass the whole world of mutual funds in one quick breath. But we could make a quick broad stroke and say that there are aggressive growth funds, and then there are growth funds, and then there are growth and income funds, and there are income funds, and there are sector funds. And that would be one way to look at them. They subcategorize into about 30 or 40 subcategories. But those five broad categories, aggressive growth funds, Growth Funds, Growth and Income Funds, Income Funds, and Sector Funds are the five broad types. What about Government Funds? Government so. Funds, Linda, are one of the, they would fall under the category of Income Funds. You see, Income Funds can be either, either investing in high-yielding stocks or bonds, and Government Funds are investing in Government Bonds, and the aim is to achieve high current income with maximum safety of principal. Okay. Thank you. You're sure welcome. If you'd like some
2: further information, I'll be happy to send you some. If you'll call the office at 872-7000, and then we can give you some more detailed assistance.
1: Chris, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
5: I have a question about college funding. Okay. And uh, my question uh, has to do with about how much should you be putting in a year? Uh, I've got an eight-year-old and a Uh four-year-old, and I've Got twenty five thousand put away so far for the eight year old and fifteen for the four year old. Uh huh. So basically, I've been doing about five a year, trying to. All right. Well, I'm just wondering if you know if I'm putting in too much, or should I cut? Can I cut back that, or should I actually increase it?
1: All right. Let me ask you a few questions first of all. How old are you, Chris? Forty three. You're forty three. Is it one in? Are you working and your wife, or just yourself? Just myself. All right. And what's your income level? It's over two fifty. You're making two hundred fifty thousand a year. Okay, so you have no problem in setting aside income. No. All right. Now the question is, where are you setting aside next? Eight-year-old got twenty-five thousand. Where is it going into?
5: Uh, it's going into uh, uniform gifts, and some of that is going into um, um, municipal bonds, things, things of that sort.
1: Yeah. Um. Okay. Now that's the mistake you're making. You're okay. actually you're making two mistakes All right. there. Uh, the first thing is, I'm now recommending to all of my clients that we do not do Uniform Gift to Minors Acts accounts any longer. Okay. And the reason being, the cost of college education, your eight year old will probably have to spend close to a half million dollars, or certainly your four year old will probably have to spend close to a half million dollars to get that kid through school if he goes to a private school. Uh That means that if that child at age 18 suddenly has the right to have a half million dollars to do what he wants with, he may decide that he thinks he's the next Ringo Starr and he doesn't need to go to college. Yeah, that's a concern. Right. So what I would recommend is, number one, fund to the absolute maximum, but don't fund to a UGMA account. In other words, there is no question of how much that you shouldn't be putting aside, mm-hmm. uh, I would approach it in a financial planning format Is I would go to Chris's financial planning uh, arena. I would look at Chris's living expenses. I would go to Chris's desired financial independence date. And then I would develop an asset allocation formula that encompassed their retirement goals at their time and then include in it.
5: Include that. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot more sense because, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. With a half a million dollars, you know. Oh, I mean, it's well, really if scary. If I had that at 18, I wouldn't have done what I did.
1: Sure. And imagine even when you were 21. Could yeah, you have handled exactly. a half million dollars at 21? Yeah, that's right. Personally, I believe that you can do better designing the whole thing for yourself and then letting the child have it at that time. The tax benefit that you gain, I don't think is worth no, it. No,
5: in fact, I, I've uh, complained uh, about... Uh, Uh, some of the taxes we've had to pay on that through capital gains and things of that sort.
1: Right. The other thing is, municipal bonds are the wrong animal anyway. Yeah. You definitely shouldn't be in muni bonds when you're looking at something 15 years down the road. No. You need to have someone look at the entire thing and look at it from the other viewpoint and include that in. And if you call my office during the week, if you like, I'll set up an appointment. Linda will go ahead and, and tell you how we approach it for clients of ours in the same situation. That's probably a good idea.
2: Okay, very good. And if you uh, would like to call the office, the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. And thanks so much for calling, Chris. Thank you. All right, Bye. take care. Doug, there was another interesting article that has to do with uh, seniors and how, you know, so many people uh, we're finding are are being uh, uh, hit with Alzheimer's and, and it's terrible, isn't it? What happens?
1: Yeah, it is. And I saw that article that was in smart money and I saw the article. Uh, I liked the way uh, Glenn Ruffinock was the writer and he, the way he approached it. He said, increasingly my friends and I, and most of us, he said, are in our mid to late fifties are starting to see the same thing amongst all of us, elderly parents who are grappling with memory loss And finding it difficult to manage their finances. And most of us, he said, are making the same mistake. We're waiting too long to do something to act. And that brought to my attention how scary are the numbers. You know, one in eight Americans now 65 years or older is going to have Alzheimer's disease. One and eight. Those are the statistics that we're hearing. But financial advisors like myself, when asked about their experiences with clients who have memory loss, invariably we all ask the same question elderly parents, adult children alike, too slow to seek advice in the early stage of the decline? Why? And, and you know, it, it's a hard story. It's really a hard story to bring it up, but you've got to bring it up.
2: You definitely have to bring it up because- um, Denial doesn't help. Exactly, it definitely does not help. And if you're seeing signs of these kinds of events happening with your parents or a loved one, or it could be you're the the, the parent and you're seeing it happen with your child. It could be anything. Um, and so it's important to look at what are the signs and what can you do and not wait. Right, Doug?
1: Yeah, the signs need to be watched for. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Financial advisors like myself highlight the warning signs, and those warning signs with regard to memory loss, money management, and then uh, what do you do when you see the signs? What are the red flags? How do you broach the issue with elderly parents and what steps need to be taken
2: you know, I remember there was one client who, who, who had some concern because her dad was, um, you know, getting all these, buying all these things um, and getting all, you know, so many of the senior citizens are victims of scams and they get all this kind of stuff in the mail. And even in the article, uh, an individual, you know, overheard, her father giving his debit card number on the phone. So you never know. And you know what
1: that was for, Linda? That was really interesting. They were asking for a political campaign, and older adults in particular are very disposed to listen and agree to these kinds of requests for help. Will you help in this political campaign? Will you help in that one? It's sort of a way for the seniors to stay involved with the outside world and feel like they're still able to make a difference. And so these scam artists are preying on just that emotion. So what are the red flags? What are the signs when you see it happening maybe to your parents? Well, maybe unusually large numbers of phone solicitations and maybe mailboxes stuffed with donation requests. Those are two signals that are red flags. You got to keep your eyes open to what's happening with mom and dad.
3: So if you see these signs, what what's your recommendation to your clients who may be seeing these signs in their parents?
1: Well, Deborah, we then come to the question of how do we have this talk? Can we talk? You know, broaching the issue of financial assistance with parents is very difficult. It's definitely difficult. If you suddenly step in and take control, then immediately parents can feel belittled. But if you get in early, you maybe have a way where you haven't taken away their dignity. And I
3: think that's the biggest part is if the conversation happens before the signs, then they have their opportunity to say, before I lose my dignity, here are the things I'd like to discuss with you, or you can bring it up and say, before you lose any dignity in this kind of a situation, let's discuss these things.
1: That's really good, Deborah. Those are some of the strategies that financial planners like us discuss back and forth uh, maybe having this little discussion with the parents about uh, uh, memory loss uh, might set in one day. And what are the triggers where you might need help? Not, of course, now, but, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're approaching the subject later on. That way, if you're early enough in the discussion, hopefully both sides, the parents and the children, can set on a plan that when it happens, if it happens, this is what we will do.
3: And most people know of of their friends before they have these signs that they know of their friends who have been taken advantage of. And they will often say to their child, their adult child, you know, before these things happen to me like they did to my close right. friend, please help me ahead of time. So this con- conversation on the one hand
2: may be difficult to begin, but it's probably one that they're already thinking about. That's exactly. right. Exactly. I want to agree with you, Debs, because uh, I'm sure... That before the parent, when the parent realizes that something's happening to them, you know, they get fearful. That's right. And then uh, they get to the point where if they don't take the first step, then they're hoping that their child will take That's a step. Right. That's because, right. Because, as you said, they don't want to lose their dignity. But on the other hand, they they know they need help. Right, Doug?
1: That's right. And I, I agree with both of y'all. They know one's to whom it has happened. They all know somebody who has either started to lose their memory, or been taken advantage of, or they've read an article. And that's another thing you can do. You can share news articles with your parents about scams that are right now targeting older adults. And this kind of interaction can happen at the the financial planner's office. That's a very good place for it to do. And you know, sometimes the simplest approach is best. Just point out that there comes a time, mom, dad, when you need a personal secretary, a financial secretary. (laughs) There comes a time, you know, there was a time when you needed to have somebody do the yard work. There's a time when you finally needed somebody to do the home repairs. There always comes a time when we all need a personal secretary. To help with the money. (laughs) That's right. And then you you schedule an appointment with a fee-based financial planner like us and the first thing you do is you make sure that you have the documents in place, a will, a power of attorney, Healthcare directives, and a living trust. If you've got those sort of things under control, then, of course, you're able to proceed with the game plan and never confuse a power of attorney with a trust. Power of attorney can be refused. Some people don't want to receive a power of attorney because you're acting as your parent's agent. With a trust, you are the trustee.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, dougandlinda.com. I think these are all very helpful just on how people can get this conversation started.
1: It's going to be a crucial issue more and more in the years to well, in the months to come.
2: Folks uh, set up in their early stages IRAs or 401ks while they're working with the hopes of being able to provide income for themselves at the end of their working days. And there, there's a subset of investors. Uh, there's an article that we saw that at 70 and a half, you need to get ready to tap your IRA. So there's a subset of investors who should be more concerned with taking money out of their traditional IRA right now. And that's namely those folks that are 70 and a half uh, that turned 70 and a half last year.
1: Yeah, that's right, Lynn, because from age 59 and a half to 70 and a half, you can take out whatever you want with no penalties at all. But after age 70 and a half, you have to begin withdrawing the minimum amount or face a stiff tax <laughs> penalty.
2: Well, there's uh, one question that had arisen in uh, one-person situation, and she asked, when do I take that initial required minimum distribution, and does that take care of all that I must take for that calendar year?
1: Well, Lynn, it depends. It depends. Let's say you turned 70 and a half last year and waited until this year to take all or part of your first required minimum distribution then in that case you're still required to take your required minimum distribution that you were supposed to take last year and you'll have to go in and take another one you have to do two of them so it depends
2: and there was another question that was raised um in which year is that first
1: distribution taxable and that is always going to be in the year that it comes out. So let's say that your 70 and a half was last year and you delayed it to this year and you got your your first year out this year and you got this year's required minimum distribution out. Both of those are taxable this year.
3: And that's really just fundamentally about the account itself. That's what it is. You know, you always say that the account itself is like the chicken house. That's right. And when that, when that, when that income, when we sell off a little bit of that chicken that's inside there and it's coming out, it's getting taxed for the first time.
1: That's right, Deborah. So it's
3: just income that's going to be received in that calendar year. If you want to accumulate enough to be financially independent, call me Deborah Lewis at 919-872-7000
2: that's 919-872-7000 so in retirement one of your you know, the most important things is to see where is that income going to come from well um uh, another question that also came up uh, from this gentleman was that he asked if he also can have the financial institution that handles his IRA withdraw or, I'm sorry, withhold the tax on his distribution. And if so, whether the tax itself would still count towards his required minimum distribution yeah, amount. And,
1: yeah, that, that's an excellent question, Linda. It certainly is. Well, the, the question is two parts. Number one, can the IRA custodian pay the tax for you? And the answer is yes from your IRA? And the second part of the question is, if the IRA custodian takes part of my RMD and sends it to the IRS for me, and I get the balance, does the... Do the two parts count as my RMD? The part that goes to the IRS, does that count as part of my RMD? And the answer to that is yes. In both cases, the answer is yes.
3: So and to go, go back to what you said to begin with, Linda, you're absolutely right. This subset of people who need to be concerned about this are learning how to take an income from a retirement plan. So now they're learning how to take income,
2: pay taxes, and what the results need to be. Well, Doug, I, I wanted to... Uh, it, Speak about this just a little bit further, because you know the av- many of our clients uh, have accumulated assets over their lifetime, and so some of them are multimillionaires because they've they've followed the principles that we have advised them as far as saving, investing, and planning for your future, so that at that stage of life you can be financially independent. And for some of these folks, when they have to turn the spigot on and they have to take out that money, they may not need that extra income.
1: I see what you're saying, Linda. Because you brought up
2: the issue of, well, this, this, uh, person that had the question brought up the issue
1: of taxes. So, what do we do in what that case do you there? Do in, that case? in that case there, we open up the spigot on the IRA because it has to be opened you're over 70 and a half and we have that RMD paid out from the IRA uh, portfolio. We also have the taxes sent to the IRS, but then that RMD we have that directed into the personal portfolio of the client so we might have two portfolios one an ira portfolio and another a non-ira or a personal portfolio and if they don't need it as you say then we have it come from one to go straight into the other it meets the irs requirement so no 50 percent penalty and at the same time it keeps the money all working wonderful okay let's take a caller carol i'll take your call now how can i help you
2: I appreciate you taking
6: the call, sir.
1: All right. Got a
6: question about living trust. Yes, ma'am. I just recently closed an estate of an uncle who died, and I was an out-of-state resident from where he lived. Mm -hmm. And the fees I paid for probate, to sell the house, to bonding, and everything else just horrified me because everything was set. He had a neat will. There was no question among the inheritors or anything like this. But the fees we had to pay made me look into living trust.
1: How much was the estate, Carol?
6: About six hundred thousand.
1: What were the fees?
6: I think I paid up to about twenty-four thousand.
1: That sounds about right. Okay.
6: So I thought about the living trust, and I've been inquiring locally about this kind of thing. I've read the books on it, and it sounds good. Uh huh. But then I found out the bank says, "Well, we charge two to three percent of the value annually." Ouch! If I had five hundred thousand dollars in an estate, uh-huh. that's not. Out of sight because of houses today. I am going to be paying five thousand a year, two to three percent.
1: You are only getting half the picture. Okay. Mm-hmm. First of all, how much is the size of your estate?
6: Probably about seven hundred thousand.
1: What you want to do? Number one, don't deal with the bank. Oh. Huh. A revocable living trust does not replace a will. No, this I this. So number two, you want to establish a revocable living trust today. Uh
6: mm-hmm.
1: huh. How is your health? Excellent. All right. You want to go ahead and identify yourself as the trustee of this trust. hmm And as the trustee, you will control everything.
6: hmm That I understand from what I've researched. What,
1: what do you own besides real estate?
6: Oh, 250000 in stock, $250,000 t bills odds and ends and unit trusts.
1: All like right. that. If you want to go ahead, you can have the the ownership of your stocks and your T-bills. You can have them transferred into the name of you as trustee mm-hmm. for that trust. Yeah, that's I understand. Well, so far, we haven't got a bank in any picture, do we? If you will call my office, I'll be happy to go ahead and help you set one of these up. We do these all the time for clients. We have uh, an attorney that either your attorney or we select an attorney who drafts the document. We then transfer the ownership of your assets into the ownership of your trust with you as trustee. Any uh, of your stocks, if they're held at a brokerage account or if they're mutual funds, we simply have the ownership changed from your name individual to trustee. But as far as the establishment of the revocable living trust, mm-hmm. you do not have to have a bank involved at all. I'll be done. And it. in your revocable living trust, you should have it designated that you have the North Carolina healthcare powers of attorney provisions written, uh, written in there. You should have living will provisions oh, put yeah, in there. I have those already. You should, you should also have credit shelter trust provisions built into your revocable living trust document right. because as you know, a, revo- a revocable living trust does not save estate taxes.
2: Carol, uh, we did have one client that who, within the last month, and she's, a, uh, I think, about 69, and she had one of these revocable living trusts set up for her her estate. Mm-hmm. And she does not have any children, mm-hmm. but she did incorporate the setting up of you know the trust in her estate planning in with her financial planning as well. Because what we find is that individuals that have accumulated a certain amount of assets want to protect it. Well, yeah,
6: you know, I'm, I'm a little amazed when I... Retired and find out what I had.
2: Yeah. Do you have children, Carol? No.
1: Okay. Well, there are things that you might want to also incorporate into total financial planning, such as long-term nursing care insurance protection. You want to cover asset allocation of your investments. I I don't have time on the air, but I would question right away why a lady like yourself has $250,000 in the stock market. That sounds a little risky to me.
6: No, that's about one-third of my state.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case...
6: It's grown through the years I've been planning. Mm-hmm. And it uh, started out 20 years ago with my husband's life insurance. Yeah. And, uh, boy, I'm amazed at what it is now. I can't sell anything. It's all capital gains.
1: Uh, yeah, well, we- I can show you a way to sell it and pay no capital gains also. Uh, what's uh, that
6: number I should call?
2: <laughs> okay, that number, Carol, here in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. 872-7000. 7, 7, That's USA 7000. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, very good. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for calling. Your time.
1: Thank you, Carol. Bye-bye. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us and for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember... Your money matters because your financial future is at stake.